This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. For every podcast I put out, I also publish a blog post at thefelderreport.com with links, charts, reports, and other resources related to the conversation. So if you haven't done so already, go to thefelderreport.com and see what you've been missing. My guest for this episode is Todd Harrison. Now, Todd is truly one of the good guys on Wall Street. After a career that took him from the Morgan Stanley options trading desk to running a major hedge fund and then starting a financial media business, Todd founded CB1 Capital several years ago. The firm, an investment advisor and manager, was born out of Todd's belief in cannabis as a relatively untapped source of wellness and as an investment opportunity. After a nine-month bear market that's seen stock prices in the sector fall, in many cases over 50%, Todd sees what he now calls a generational opportunity and the trade of a lifetime. In this conversation and in typical Todd fashion, he candidly shares his work and discusses his thesis behind the trade. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Todd Harrison. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Tato, welcome back to the show. How are you, Jesse? It's good to talk with you again. You know, I'm, I'm super glad to uh, have this chance to talk with you because I've been watching the cannabis opportunity very closely. And um, as much as I would love to do this in person, and I was actually hoping to get back east, Maybe next summer, you know, this opportunity seems really timely. So I'm, I'm glad that we could uh, we could do this. Um, but before I get into the cannabis thing, you tweeted, you know, for everybody who, you know, is maybe unaware of of uh, of you, I, you know, I recommend we I think it's been four years since we last talked, but we discussed <laughs> your background and all that kind of stuff back then. And so I, I recommend people go listen to that episode for, for you know, just to understand your background. But you did tweet recently and I got to ask you about this. Uh, quote, made 28K a year when I started at MS in 1991, watched the Stratton Oakmont kids drive around in Ferraris, getting a similar vibe now during the everything rally as cannabis pays its dues and grows its roots. This is the beginning of a long journey. So f- first of all, congrats on 30 years in the business, my friend. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> this is a, that's a pretty cool anniversary. But I also got to ask you about the Stratton Oakmont thing. I mean, uh, what was that like, you know, just kind of witnessing that firsthand? Did you think like, what are these guys doing that I'm not? Or was there, you know, were you, did you kind of have a sense that, uh, that uh, you know, Jordan Belfort's, uh and, and co were kind of up to no good? Well, I didn't know jo- Jordan. Uh, as it turns out, it was, uh, we were in the same neighborhood. I grew up in Great Neck on the south side of, of the tracks, Uh uh, not the north side of Great Neck, which is a completely different uh, vibe. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, worked since I'm 13 or so. So I, I no stranger to that. And I, you know, 21 years old, you know, I'm not going to lie. You see these kids in these Ferraris and you, you do wonder what's going on over there. Um, forgive me. <clears throat> as, I, as I let my puppy out. Um, you know, you do wonder what's going on over there. But uh, I didn't know them directly. I just I, I watched them from afar. Um, but it did motivate me certainly to 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 go down the road, and and it was a much longer road uh, at Morgan Stanley, just in terms of paying your dues and learning your lessons and making mistakes and really uh, finding your way uh, through uh, Wall Street in the early '90s, uh, and as derivatives and all of that came to the fore. So uh, it's been a lot, uh, a lot of bubbles and busts over the last 31 years now. Yeah. Well, you know, it was just, it, it, it struck me as, uh, you know, something that, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty good metaphor for what's going on today, right? I mean, if you're, if you're in the cannabis space, it's been a, a challenge over the last six months or so to watch these things just get cheaper and cheaper while everything else is just, you know, screaming well, higher. Well, it's been nine months, Jesse. Not that, not that I'm counting, but it's been nine months. <laughs> but, right. you know, it's a... It, it is a, a bit of a metaphor. The everything rally of 2021 and not just stocks, but crypto and trading cards and NFTs and pretty much everything on the planet except for U.S. cannabis. Uh, and, you know, why is that? Well, you know, how long have you got? Uh, but the reality is, if you look back to 
the March 20 low and, and, and global cannabis, uh, just to take a step back and a little contextualization for those who are new to the space, you know, the way we look at it, it's three, fa- there's three uh, phases, right? There was the 1.0, which was Canadian cultivation. Uh, that was all about capacity and, and really the idea of smoking a lot of weed, right? Not that it was that simple, but that was the mindset. Uh, and they didn't have the distribution, the channels. There was a lot of lot wrong there, uh, but snaps to our Canadian friends for, uh, for forging the way. 2.0 uh, is the notion of cannabis as an ingredient, right, uh, in CPG, uh, consumer packaged goods. So that is, uh, it's, it's a pretty ubiquitous uh, category, but everything from, obviously, there's the, uh, the social lubricant side uh, and, and the form factors therein, whether it's uh, smoking it, eating it, vaping it, uh, bubble baths, tinctures, uh, lotions, there's going to be a lot of different uh, for, uh, a, lot, a lot of different form factors, uh, but also uh, as an ingredient across uh, across society and everything from cosmetics and vanity to animal feed to uh, pet supplements. I mean, it's a really it's a it's a therapeutic uh, compound. So there's going to be a lot of use cases for it. But that's all getting unpacked, and that's you know neither here nor there. 3.0, just so it's said, is the idea of cannabis as medicine. Uh, FDA pathway, clinical pathway, biotech pathway. Um, we're you know we're excited about that, but that with GW Pharmaceuticals off the board now, you know those those companies are back in the farm leagues, just trying to find their way now, um, which is fine because 2.0 is really exciting. It's about to get unpacked. Um, and to your point, is you know the last nine months of of, of a, pretty much a straight down trend. Why? Okay, well. You know, into that Canadian cultivation 1.0, you had this massive, massive rally, right? And that rally topped out in January of, of 2018. Uh, from January 2018 to February of 2020, uh, the global cannabis index is me- measured by Bloomberg was down 92%. Uh, and I know uh, that because we were managing money through it. It was not fun. Uh, it was a definite learning experience. And to be honest, the blessing of, of that whole process was uh, a few things. One, our, uh, our advisory business was formed out of it because when the going gets tough, you, you form your allies and you, you band together. And we, we found a new business. And we also found a lot of very good friends and colleagues and associates and partners uh, because, you know, iron sharpens iron. And when you're down 90% from the highs, you really do find out who your friends are and who does things right and who cuts corners and who tells the truth and all that. Uh, and so coming out of that, and that was before the pandemic, mind you, and that was, I'll tell you this part because it's relevant today, uh, but that, that last real push lower uh, into that, uh, the spring of 2020 was a function of Pershing uh, pulling all of their custodian uh, relationship for cannabis-related stocks. So you couldn't, Pershing basically... They, you know, structurally, that was massive, right? Because every hedge fund, every, a lot of, not every hedge fund, but they were the, by far the biggest platform uh, for cannabis uh, and they walked away. So everybody, it was existential risk. I think the cost of capital, there was a 60% print uh, and there was real concern about the ability. Of... Sorry about that. I love my dogs, but they're not always <laughs> No worries. Um, it was there was real sustain there was real existential risk to the space and then the pandemic hit right but and we've talked about this a lot i don't think we've talked about it you and i but it, that set in motion what we now call the slow motion perfect storm which was uh you had the uh it was it was uh as it came out uh it was a deemed essential uh, going into the pandemic uh, and then, of course, the breadth and the depth of the pandemic and the need for tax revenues at the state level, the need for jobs in a post-pandemic world, uh, you know, those all uh, started to manifest and demonstrate how the breadth of, of, of the need for that for those two elements would be. You had the social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement and really illuminating the war on drugs for what it is. Uh, and then you had the five state sweep in in the elections of uh, 2020, right? 2020 and November of 2020. Uh, and that was blue and red states. And that's when we really pushed all of our chips in because it was like, uh, this is a state-led story for all the reasons we discussed. Uh, and there are, that's a long tail in front of us uh, in terms of these states coming online. Uh, and the stocks reacted off of the, that February or March low of 2020, I should say. Uh, they, these names were up 
you know, Terrasen was up 1,250%, uh, Green Thumb was up 1,000%. I mean, you're talking 10x moves, right, into February of this year. Uh, and then, you know, that was when you had the blue wave come through and Schumer come through and every, that was like a short-term blow off top. That was the cyclical uh, bull within the secular bull, uh, that, that top. And since then, uh, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70% lower in U.S. cannabis for a number of reasons. Uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, I would say call it 50%, which is what the MSOS uh, you know, has, has retraced. That's the U.S. cannabis ETF that we advise, uh, but it's it's U.S. cannabis exposure as opposed to MJ, which is Canadian cannabis exposure. Uh, but you have a you know after after a 10x move in, in 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 some of these a lot of these names, and, and MSOS was only introduced in February of last year, so it only caught that last tail or up 175 percent from from what was it September 1st to February 10th. Uh, still a pretty good move, you know, so to pull back 50%, uh, you know, rough justice, uh, or for the space to pull back, you know, in a cyclical bull within a secular, uh, cyclical, cyclical bear, excuse me, within a secular bull, uh, makes sense, I think, as we take a step back and, and, and a longer lens. And I think we're, we're right about there. I mean, we're talking now, it's November 4th, 2021, it's a Thursday, MSOS is trading at 2584 uh, it's the lows of 2021, and I think a great time for us to be having this conversation. Yeah, and, and I want to get into MSOS and, you know, kind of just for people who are unfamiliar, introduce them to what, you know, what MSOs are and what the, you know, the, how the ETF uh, tries to take advantage of those. But I want to come back to this advisory business because to me, it seems like that's one thing, you know, you've really been good at throughout your career is kind of building connections um in, in the industry that uh you know help you um you know just validate your own ideas and things and and so what what makes me think of this is you were in Ojai again recently um i think mm-hmm. it was 15 years ago or something uh that uh i i showed up down there for, for the minionville event that's and, right and you what were is, at the i mean first. that's right well, I, I don't, uh, and I don't do investment conferences or anything typically. So that that one for me was was kind of a rare thing. But you you did you were in Ohio again. Um, was this uh, you know? I guess what did you get out of that that experience? What was kind of the purpose of it, and what what did you take away from it? Yeah, that's uh, I forgot you were you were there. It was two thousand five, I think. So sixteen years ago, it was right. a full circle. Um, I was looking to replicate, uh, the, you know, the Minionville community, but in cannabis, especially during, you know, as, as you know, and for those unfamiliar, Minionville is the, my former company or um, hobby for 15 years, as you might call it. Uh, but it's about educating and informing and building community around things like honesty, trust and respect. And all you have is your name and your word. And you'd be surprised at how many, you know, people can identify with that and really value that even still. And it, it, the you know the, you say the air of integrity gets thinner with age, right? So it's like it gets you know you find out over the course of time uh, as more people have the opportunity and time to make choices uh, that things like integrity um, are sacrosanct, right? And and so uh, you build community uh, around people who are good at what they do, better who they are, and you have a much higher likelihood of success. And that was the model. Uh, that was the model on the people side. On the uh, on the Ojai side, I, I was looking to replicate that, and I was introduced a few times to these guys over at Trailblazers, and they had built an incubation, uh, you know, a, a community around, you know, grassroots and ground up, boots on the ground, um, inc- more of an incubation model for helping small businesses emerge through cannabis, and they, they came from, um, you know, a background in, in having, you know, a summit a part of the summit series and high high-end events. So I was intrigued and I got to know them and they had the same ethos in terms of the community. So I said, okay, I, I get that part. And as I got to know the business model of what they were doing, I said, you know, we used to do this. As a matter of fact, we did this 16 years ago in Ojai. When I found out that they were doing it at Ojai, I said, wow, isn't that, you know, uh, isn't that interesting uh, if you believe in signs? So uh, I said, listen, if we can go ahead and take some of, of, of the model that I employed the last time here the Wall Street lens and we build categories, right? And, and the categories that I suggested and that we ultimately did were uh, we have the banks, we have the operators, we have the investors and, um, you know, primarily those three uh, and, and find within those categories best in breed. Uh, again, people good at what they do, better who they are. 
And when you get there, you lift up the silos and you let the entourage effect, you know, take tickets, you know, do what it does, right? You let people uh, congregate. It's not about sitting in a room all day. It's about events. I mean, me and Jamie Mendoa work out next to each other. He looked, you know, just like Ben Affleck. I was like, it was a really odd out-of-body experience, but those are the ties that bind, right? The, we lay, we smile now, we talk about it, we've built memories. That's what creates relationships. Relationships <clears throat> tend to facilitate business. And so we had a great group. I think we had like something like 20 sponsors. We had BTIG and Jeffries and Ladenburg and Seaport and Roth and Needham, all these banks there. Like we had eight U.S. banks, which tells you something a little bit about uh, what their intentions are in the space to go out there, right? And I said to those guys, listen, you have a sales trader, you have a, a banker, and you have an analyst. And if you guys can't, you know, combine to really generate some real ROI, then, you know, with the, with the crowds that's there, uh, you know, then somebody's not doing their job. And sure enough, they all came back with, you know, 25 action items on relationships. So, you know, they were happy. And then the investors, they want to talk to the analysts, they want to talk to the operators. So they were happy. The operators want to talk to the analysts, want to learn about the banking relationships in the U.S. and how, how that's going to look on the other side of federal le uh, legislation. So there was that. So the idea is, you know, you look at what you know what defines success as i said to these partners when they got there i said well, how would you define success when you leave here and they said this is what i want this is who i want to meet and, and it's just that easy so that was the idea it's very similar to what we did 16 years ago <clears throat> and, and and kudos to the trailblazers team for really you know creating a a, a superb uh, event that wasn't about sitting in a room listening to each other talk but about doing things together and and in a congregation to congregation model of, of experiential uh, benefit. I mean, that it, it's just really cool. I, I think that, you know, this can seem like, you know, the world of finance, like a real, you know, competitive, uh, you know, space. And you've always done such a good job about making it more cooperative. And, and uh, you know, that, that, you know, I've always appreciated that for one, but to come back to kind of the, where we are in the, you know, I guess cannabis as a business, um, you know, in the, in the, the longer term trend, uh, it, it seems to me there's like three major dynamics going on that are affecting prices. First, people have been waking up to the idea, um, you know, that that cannabis has important uses in terms of wellness, not just you know in in, in uh, you know recreation, um, but even the recreation opportunity is a big one. Um, but Second, then the business end is being figured out of it, uh, figured out and systematized. Um, and then third, legalization is moving forward, which also affects availability to investors and these types of things. You kind of touched on that, too. Uh, yep. But all these things seem to affect prices in their own way and across different time frames. And I, I think just kind of maybe you could speak to, you know, those trends and investors kind of waking up to to cannabis as, uh, you know, wellness in addition to recreation. And then also the business end of it, I, I, I think to me too, that's kind of the, the one of the more interesting sides of it is figuring out how the business works in a legal framework is, is something that's that's really developed since the last time we talked. Sure. And since the last time we talked, think about all the states that have come online now, and especially in the last year alone, all the states. And in the next year, I'm hearing up to six states next year. Um, so our thesis has always been about the state-led story, um, the 10th Amendment, I said the 10th commandment, the 10th amendment, uh, the states is uh, laboratories of democracy. Um, this is very much in play here. Um, the reason cannabis is so U.S. cannabis, and, and I have to differentiate because, you know, there is Canadian cannabis that's listed on U.S. exchanges. Uh, and then there is the U.S. cannabis companies that are relegated to the Canadian stock exchange and the pink sheets because of their federal treatment by the government. Um, that's created a world where only, well, mostly retail, I'd say 98% retail participation, uh, very emotional uh, audience, very emotional uh, stockholders. And they, they you know, typically, um, you know, not as strong a hands as some of the institutional types that you want to have on your cap table and that we will have on our cap table over time. And that's been really the, the drivers, that perception of federal movement. Uh, and that's why these things ripped into February of, of 20 uh, of this year, um, because everyone thought Schumer was going to move this through and get uplisting to U.S. stock exchanges and access to institutional capital and all of the things 
that are responsible for why the leading in the leading cannabis companies in the U.S. or the Fang cannabis companies uh, in the U.S. are trading eight, nine times next year's earnings, right? For hyper growth, uh, outlier. Right? You're getting growth in value, hyper growth in value. And the reason is people are uncertain about what the federal landscape is going to look like. People are concerned about, uh, you know, that the growth is going to slow, which it will over time from a parabolic pace. Uh, they're worried about the illicit market. They're worried really about um, that the, a red sweep now will pretend, uh, you know, four more years on the pink sheets, right? So, and then, you know, as you alluded to earlier, I think in particular, uh, as the only sector that's down this year, the tax loss harvesting is just absolutely brutal. So you add into that mix that two days ago, JP Morgan came out and said that they were going to no longer custody cannabis-related securities. Um, following Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, following CS First Boston. This is nothing new. But the, uh, the what was interesting to me is that, to me, this was a bit of a mirror image to Pershing. We talked earlier about Pershing when they did the same exact thing that JP Morgan did. They, they were responsible for a large part of the holders of U.S. cannabis. Uh, and it got no media attention, right? So structurally massive, minimal media attention. JP Morgan, minimal uh, structural impact, right? I don't, I don't, a couple hundred million, maybe, uh, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, a lot of that was, uh, as we believe it was taken care of in October is one of the reasons that the stocks have been, uh, sort of doing what they've been doing, uh, but not uh, a huge structural impact in and of itself, huge media exposure. So you, you copy, you know, you, you, you look at, you know, the sentiment, you look at the technical charts breaking, you look at, uh, tax loss selling, you look at, uh, you know, people thinking that this is dead at the federal level or even tied, uh, you know, in whole to the federal level. And you end up with, I mean, we have stocks like Verano, which we advise and, and you know, but we have a big position that uh, that we built a, a while back. Uh, Verano is trading at five or six times next year's earning. This is a this is U.S. cannabis royalty as far as I'm concerned. This is the best in breed. Uh, it should not be here. This is one of the great mispriced pieces of merchandise I've ever seen. And as I'm sitting here, and again, it's November 4th, 1.22 PM, uh, you know, the MSOS is 25.87. I'm sitting here and I just wrote a tweet that I said, I think the generational opportunity is about to meet the trade of a lifetime. And I say that because of the sentiment. I say that because of the setup. Everybody had sold their shares already, thinking that this is a dead story. And I think that we're going to get a legislative uh, one-two punch uh, in the next month if not the next week, uh, that could really change perception. That could really shake up, uh, you know, people who have, you know, think that they can get by, buy these things back in a month uh, when their wash cereal goes away. So I think the setup's there, uh, but I've been wrong before, Jesse, you know that. Uh, but I think long-term, no matter what happens in the next week or the next month, uh, this is to me a generational opportunity and a once in a lifetime chance to get in, to a sector before institutions are able to on, on board. And that to me, you know, I don't care if it's in a week, a month or a year, to be honest, the longer it takes, the more I can buy uh, and, and, the, and the more money I think we'll ultimately make. Well, I mean, that's that, yeah, that's, you know, quite a statement to make, but, you know, coming from you, I, I, you know, uh, you're one of the people I respect most in this business. And so for, you know, when, when somebody like you, you know, comes out with a statement like that, it, it certainly gets my attention. I, I want to kind of come back to, um, you know, the prospect of federal legalization. I think you kind of mentioned that you see some things on the horizon <clears throat> that, you know, potentially in the short term. <clears throat> could be uh, positive. <clears throat> Sorry, you're right, my buddy. I'm not going to give you mouth to mouth, not because there's a pandemic, <laughs> but because, we're, because we're you know three thousand miles away. Right. Uh, but I would if you were if you needed it, I would be there for you. I appreciate it. So yeah, in terms of the uh, you know the the prospect of uh, federal legalization, um, you know, what do you see on on the horizon? Because that seems to me like that that's the the big bogey that's out there that, uh, you know, once that, that happens, you know, by then, you know, prices will already be discounting that well in right. advance. And that's when I ask you, when is this going to post? Because what I think is going to happen, I think it's going to happen in a relatively short order. So I mean, they're going to sound really smart or really stupid by the time people listen to this. Uh, I can tell you what we're hearing. Um, and that's only as good as, you know, the antenna and it's only as good as the frequency that's coming in. Uh, but what we're hearing 
is that there is a there's a political calculus in play where the GOP is trying to take the issue from the Democrats. As you know, Chuck Schumer uh, is you know has a big bills uh, that he that he you know has been shopping around and talking about for uh, you know since he came into office. So it's been all year, and I certainly applaud the senator for trying to affect social justice reform as a centerpiece of legislation. Uh, if there was a perfect world, this would be, you know, led by social justice and anything about banking would be an addendum to that. Uh, but it's not. In, in this world, the only thing that has bipartisan support so far is safe banking. Uh, and the Democrats have positioned themselves that this is a win for big business and a, and a loss for the small, uh, the small uh, operator and the social justice applicants. Um, I think the light bulb that went off over Washington this summer was that the small justice, excuse me, uh, uh, social justice and small business owners are disproportionately impacted uh, by the banking regulations, that the large operators have by and large found solutions and have the scale to absorb, you know, these types of incremental um, costs on top of all the other costs like 280E and not being able to take expenses and not being able to use credit cards, not being able to use a commercial bank. I mean, all of this, it's like 1971. Uh, but this is the world we live in. Uh, and safe banking would open, would begin to open that up. Now, there is a safe banking bill that's attached to the NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, which is must pass legislation. Uh, Senator Polmutter, excuse not Senator Polmutter, uh, Congress. Congressman Perlmutter uh, in the House attached it to the NDAA. And at the time, the GOP went out of their way uh, to support it. And I remember writing on Twitter and thinking to myself, isn't that interesting that they're, that they're now embracing banking? But we know that because the American Banking Association wants cannabis to be safely banked because that's their business, right? I mean, follow the money. Uh, but the GOP uh, in, in, the, in the House supported it. So I remember thinking to myself, this is interesting, and everybody still is, you know, was thinking this is there's no shot this gets through. And even if it does, the Safe Banking Act, as it is amended uh, to the NDAA, does not include capital market provisions. It's a bare bone boilerplate safe banking act. And there's people who will say, well, that does nothing for capital markets. And they're wrong. Because what it does is it automatically updates FinCEN and AML guidance. Uh, which would presumably uh, move a lot of the blocks to uplisting and a lot of the blocks to institutional money. That's uh, a second derivative win, but make no mistake, it's a ma- it would be a massive, massive win. So now it goes over to the Senate, and that's where it's sitting. And this is the second latest that the Senate has ever taken to take up the NDAA, and you ask yourself why. Um, we think we have, well, we might know one of the reasons why, other than the fact that they are, you know, their agenda is so packed, it's like trying to, <laughs> trying to do a lot. I, I'll, I'll leave the, the, the analogies aside. Uh, they have a full plate and last a couple days ago, right? Uh, they did not have a good election day. Uh, the pressure's on for them to do something. And now I think the JP Morgan news actually is, is added pressure to do something because that was a very high profile thing. And there's a lot of unhappy people. So it goes over now to the Senate and what we're hearing is that the Senate GOP uh, and, and ranking members of the Senate Armed Services Committee have all flipped positive for safe. And I'm told, uh, obviously none of this is confirmed, that there's 18 Republican senators voting for safe or in favor of safe. Now, Schumer is the Senate Majority Leader. He could squash it, presumably. But if it goes to conference and they defer to the House version, to, uh, and that's the version that comes through, it only needs 60 votes. That's my understanding. And they have the 60 votes. So you have safe banking potentially before year end. And I don't think people are really anticipating that. Uh, but if that wasn't enough, and I wrote this tweet about 10 minutes ago, I said, this is the GOP calculus. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. We're hearing that there is a bill that's about to be announced or could be announced that may be announced next week, two weeks, three weeks, sometime in the future uh, from a uh, from a South Carolina um uh, congresswoman, and it is evidently a, a a very well-written bill, and it already has bipartisan support. And if they release that draft in the next week or so, or two or three, or whatever it is, 
uh, as cover into the NDAA, I think the trap is set. Uh, and with everybody having already sold their cannabis because of the tax losses, and this is not going to be a great quarter because on the one, you know, we're coming out of a period where you have normalization after that post-COVID uh, you know, pantry stuffing where everybody bought cannabis, you know, into the pandemic. So you have those compares. And so it's going to not look as good against those compares. And you have had on the other side, some delays on the rollout in New Jersey. It looks like Q4, Q1, maybe Q2 for rec and in New York, Q4, Q1 of the following year. But these are massive metropolises, right? I mean, massive metropolises. So like, even if nothing happens with the legislation, you know, you're, this is, you're, you're, you're getting paid to own these red, the longer it takes for the federal legislation to slide, the more of a moat the existing operators are going to have to build and the more valuable their enterprises are. If I'm wrong on this, Jesse, like I said, it wouldn't be the first time, but I have never in my 31 years had more conviction on a tr on, on both an investment and a trade. Uh, than I do at right now, 131 on November 4th. Doesn't mean that it's going to be right. Doesn't mean that, you know, as you know, we've known each other a long time. I, I'm typically early. I first started tweeting about cannabis in 2010 or 2012. I'm sorry. So, you know, like I, I, timing is hard, uh, but I think it's setting up. And, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, appreciate that. I'm going to try and publish this today. I was going to wait until next week, but I think, you know, because of the timeliness factor, I'm going to get it out today. But I, you know, I, I want to understand a little bit more about the, the, the business model itself and, and maybe help people understand what the MSOs are. Um, maybe from the standpoint of, uh, you know, well, I'll just put it this way. I, I think I was, was slow to kind of wake up to the idea of cannabis because living here in Oregon, um, it seems like it, it hasn't been done as well as it's been done in other states. There's, you know, illegal pot grows all over the state. They've had to bring in the National Guard to kind of deal with a lot of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I've just heard that Oregon is the prime example of how not to legalize cannabis. So maybe from the standpoint of, you know, uh, what, what states, how states are doing it right versus how they're doing it wrong, maybe help people understand it from a business model standpoint. Sure. I mean, there is every state is different, which is the patchwork of, you know, necessity is a mother of invention. Is that it? Is that how it's said? I think yeah. yeah. So. Um, so think about in a federal a federally illegal, you know, this is schedule one, this is heroin, this is, you know, but in the eyes of the U.S. government, and we could talk about how they weaponize this plant to stop immigration at the Texas El Paso border, or, or how they've used it to disproportionately impact uh, people of color through, you know, uh, and weaponize this thing, but we don't have that much time, but it should be said, it's, it's, it's a black stain on the soul of this country, <laughs> to be honest with you. And yeah. All of that is, is going to be part of, you know, that wall crumbling down. Uh, but because of the federal treatment, uh, you've had states that have had to um, enact their own legislation, 10th, 10th, 10th Amendment, the uh, states as uh, laboratories of democracy uh, in California, Colorado. Uh, and, and this has been going on for a while as medical states. And then they move to uh, recreational or adult use over time. Every state is different. Some states like Oregon, like California, uh, they are not limited license states. So you can you can grow. There's as many licenses as you, as you want to give out. You can give out. Uh, it, it offers. I'm sorry, my dog is going to. Uh, <laughs> of course, it's Jacks. Uh, oh, oh gosh. Sorry, my daughter is off today, and she's got ten friends here. So <laughs> no problem. Um. Um. I'm we sorry. were talking about limited licenses versus unlimited yes. in states so, like so, Oregon. So the economics in, in states with without limited licenses is much more difficult uh, than the economics in states with limited licenses. And to be sure, you know, this, these are artificial impediments, but uh, a, a meaning that these moats aren't going to last forever. Uh, but at the same time, you have a situation where, uh, you know, the longer that they stay this way, the better that it is. And you're having the opportunity and you're, you have a, uh, a moat around your ability to uh, grow, process and sell cannabis. And our sense is that states are going to continue to control who can grow, process and sell cannabis. Over time, there's going to be interstate commerce. Over time, there's going to be an FDA, all of this. But, um, you know, there's no broad based criminal justice reform 
uh, going back to one of the elements on, uh, behind this uh, with cannabis on the Controlled Substances Act. It's not like you could t- you could say it's Schedule Two and instead of 20 years in jail, you'll do 10 years in jail. It, it's not tenable. It doesn't make sense, right? The only thing that makes sense is to take it off the Controlled Substances Act. You circle it like cigarettes or alcohol, which is an irony because it's actually better for you than both of that. Uh, and you know, and and that's the way I think that will go. Uh, but there's a lot left to figure out, uh, and the market doesn't like uncertainty, and certainly um, the market doesn't like uh, cannabis right now, as I'm sitting here, and people are pinging me that Cure Relief just broke the IPO price. Um, I don't know. I think the biggest, my biggest concern right now, Jesse, if I could be completely lucid, is that I'm not that concerned. Like mm-hmm. My biggest concern is that I'm sitting here buying, adding upside calls to the MSOS, and just waiting for this for the for the for the track to sprint um maybe i'm wrong but this is to me this is the textbook second bite at the apple um if unless there is something out there that i don't know i don't think it's going to be bad bad fundamentals i wouldn't mind some sloppy numbers and everyone to get a little bit bearish one more time uh, and then you see some legislation come out that makes people realize that they're they better get involved but i can tell you this the buyers are higher um I've spoken to a number of different funds in the street, and I think there's a lot more money coming in. Uh, we saw Eminence Capital uh, announce what last week, two weeks ago, uh, Ricky Sandler that that they moved a bunch of money into the space. Uh, Jason Wild, you know, is probably one of the best investors I know, on top of being a, a pretty damn good uh, uh, chairman of Terrasen. Uh, you know, these are smart people who who see the long term opportunity. My, you know, my. I, I don't want to name names, but people who I really respect are telling me that not only are they pushing a lot more money in, but uh, there's a wall of money that's coming behind. And I don't even think it needs to be the institutions, because to your point, you know, once the once the hedge funds can sniff out uh, that that you know that this is going to happen, they're going to front run the institutions, uh, and, and they're going to move into the space quickly, and it's going to re-rate quickly. Like if I'm looking at something like the Verano. And Verano is trading at a 50% discount to the average multiple uh, for its tier one MSOs. And the average tier one MSO is trading at an 80% discount to the S&P growth multiple. You know, I do the math and I'm like, wow, Verano's worth $100. I'll just keep buying it at 10, right? right. That's how I look at things. And again, we, we advise them, but it's not even about that. It's about the math. It's about the execution. It's about the jockeys, right? It's about you're betting on the jockeys, not the horse in this stage of the cycle. And it's looking for the green thumbs. It's looking for the terrace ends. It's looking for the Veranos uh, and knowing your way around. The first move off of this is going to be a rising tide that lifts all boats. I think the second move from there uh, is going to be about alpha and about, you know, good stewards of capital and and the right jockeys on the horses. But um, there's an oligopoly of U.S. cannabis names right now. Uh, And when the gates open and the alcohol companies can buy and the tobacco companies can buy and Fidelity and Wellington and Putnam and all of the institutions are able to buy, it's going to be a mismatch on on supply versus demand. And I I know that sounds really silly to be saying it as I'm sitting here and these things are just a wash in red. Everyone's freaking. I can't believe Cura just broke IPO. And I'm sitting here feeding my dog the remnants of my uh, flat uh, flat crust pizza and uh, and just buying more calls and and like that you know I'm not being glib I'm just like this is this is why we work is to get to moments like this and I don't know if it's a moment today next week like I said but it's close I feel it in my bones yeah well I, and I want to dig even deeper into that opportunity uh, but I, I also want to understand um, the MSOs. A little bit better. I mean, you know, we talked about states with limited licenses, unlimited licenses. When I was looking at cannabis as a business a few years ago, when it was legalized here in Oregon, you know, I just saw so, you know, all those licenses go out and so many people started growing that, you know, profits just tumbled. And and I think there, there was a lot of product and stuff that came on the market at a loss, um, you know, because of it was just done done poorly. But, you know, I started looking at the MSOs, you know, a few months ago, and these things are highly profitable. I mean, the business model is totally different than what I assumed it was uh, from just looking at companies here in Oregon, private companies. So maybe talk a little bit about like what are the multi-state operators and 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 what makes them uh, just cash generating machines. Well, again, um, because of the regulatory environment, you've got. You know, you've got a lot of things that, Jaxi, stop it. 
I apologize, Jesse. Uh, <laughs> no worries. Uh, because of the, uh, the uh, because of the federal regulations, there's a lot of impediments, artificial impediments. I talked about the tax treatment, talked about the banking, talked about the exchanges, talked about the investors. Uh, and despite all of that, uh, this goes back to iron sharpens iron. Despite all of that, what we call the U.S. cannabis fang, these names are still generating free cash flow. They're profitable, and 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 they're and and they have set up. A framework of operations across the most of them across the limited license states, some of them across both limited license and unlicensed states. Everybody has a has a different uh, take on a similar model, right? Whereas maybe you have some that are that are really geared to wholesale, uh, the wholesale market. You have others that are more geared to the the premium flower. But I think by and large, what you're talking about is the evolution of a CP of a new category of CPG uh, that you know I would probably say is akin to crypto in 2015 or 16, right? As people start to understand, uh, you know, not only the, the uh, opportunity economically, but the perceptional offsides that this is vice, that this, this isn't wellness, right? We, we, we think that this is a wellness play. We think, yes, people are going to use this recreationally and drink it instead of beer and take it for sleep uh, instead of Xanax or, 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 or any of the other medications. But over time, this is going to be a ubiquitous and you know, uh, economic driver. It's going to be a category, an asset class that really emerges to, as, a, as a growth hedge uh, at a time where everything else that has any growth attached to it is at a ridiculous multiple or no multiple in the case of um, you know, a lot of the digital stuff. So um, you know, every company is different. Uh, within the company, within the sector, every company is different. Um, but there are tiers, right? You have your tier ones, you have your tier twos, your tier threes. Um, and that's at MSOS, which is the ETF that, that we help advise. They, The way that that is structured is we'll call it barbelled, where you have half, you know, half of it is FANG and then half of it's the second and third tier guys that may have a little bit more trouble surviving and thriving uh, in the absence of uh, any federal movement and the continuation of these artificial impediments. But if you get something like a safe banking act that comes through the beta uh, on, on the back end of that totem pole is, is going to, I think, be uh, a lot bigger than the beta on some of the uh, front end fang names. So let me ask you about the, the MSOS um, ETF. You advise um, the ETF. So you might be, I don't know, limited in how much you can, you can talk about, but uh, it, it invests in these multi-state operators, but it, it looks like it doesn't own the equities directly. How, how are they actually implementing the trade? Right. So because of the federal regulation, uh, you can't list on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or even the Toronto Stock Exchange, for that matter, if you're touching the plant in the U.S., right? If you're a, if you're a foul of federal regulations, you can't touch the plant. Uh, I'm sorry, you can't list on, on a major exchange, which is why a lot of institutions won't touch it, which is why a lot of the CPG won't touch it, uh, because they don't want to be brought, uh, you know, in the, in the case of CPG, they don't want to have 280E, which is the tax code applied against their whole business. And in the case of the investors, they're not going to risk their entire franchise uh, to invest in something that's federally illegal um, if it's even, a, you know, a, a fraction of what their franchise value is. Uh, we've spoken to a lot of these funds and we've spoken to a lot of the CPG and they're all coming. Uh, so it's a matter of, of, of when, not if. But, um, you know, from here until there, uh, you know, these companies will continue to build their business until uh, and, until they have, uh, you know, a better line of sight on on uplisting. So the the ETF um, uses some type of derivative in order to yes to, yes I'm sorry so so it's a forward return swap so they don't own it directly because of the federal treatment um, and this is blessed by Finra it's blessed by the SEC uh, so this is you know kosher uh, through the eyes of of, of both of those. Uh, regulatory agencies, and uh, they're buying the rights to the the underlying assets at a particular price of where you you buy the MSOS. Uh, so it's a it's you're not actually owning the underlying assets, but you're owning the upside and downside exposure. Well, I mean, it's just fascinating to me. One of the first, it might have been the very first interview that I did when I started my podcast four or five years ago, was with Steve Bregman at Horizon Kinetics, and we talked about. The massive impact, obviously, that passive and indexing has on on the markets today, and his firm, you know, for the past I don't know however long, five ten years, has been looking has has decided that 
true value opportunities are going to be things found in things that are outside the purview of the indexes because the indexes float. You know, money goes into the index, index buys everything. And uh, things that are underexposed to indexes are going to be where, you know, the, there's opportunity. I mean, cannabis is not only left out of the indexes, it's left out of the, you know, the, ma- the, the majority of U.S. investors can't buy them. So there's, there's this structural impediment that, uh, you know, almost necessitates them being extremely cheap today, uh, you know, while pa- you know, indexes are doing really, really uh, well. It's got all the characteristics of a stock that would have done well in or a sector that would have done well in 2021, right? If you had, um, you know, you, you got all these Robin Hood traders who want to stick it to the man because they stopped trading GameStop. Imagine if they actually wrap their heads around the fact that of what they've done to U.S. cannabis, not only as a country, uh, you know, to the people uh, about, you know, burying the data for years, all of the lost opportunities and the, and the sunk costs and the treatment of, of, of people and all of it. And then the custody stuff, the JP Morgan, it's just like this is once Robin Hood figures out that the MSOS is the ultimate vehicle to stick it to the man. You know, <laughs> this, that'll be a good, you know, I don't know if they'll still be around. I don't know if we'll still be around, uh, but none of that is in play to your point. There's really, we're at the, you know, and there's a lot of pernicious algos. I know, you know, you don't hate the player, hate the game, but we watch them. I mean, you know, and you have all retail holders of these things and then you have these algos come in and, and they're so illiquid trading on these, you know, on the pink sheets and on the, uh, on those Canadian stock exchange that they, they just beat the crap out of these things on the close. And everyone's like, oh, something must be wrong. I must be missing something. Business is really bad. What am I missing? And and this is, you know, gamesmanship on the on the CSC, which is just repugnant uh, and uh, and just completely, uh, you know, out of my control. But it is what it is. Right. Like, so what do I do? I sit here and I say I hate the player. I can hit the game or I could just control what I can control and navigate the rest. And. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, the prices are going to do what the price is going to do. So we're going to work on trying to, you know, find money, as much money as possible to invest at these levels, uh, identify as many relationships to build at these levels uh, and really use price to our uh, to our advantage. And I can tell you this, like people are very angry out there. Um, I've actually had to t- turn my DMs off. I get, you know, I, I'm getting cursed out. Uh, getting, And you know what? That's probably a good sign, too. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's that's one of the reasons why I'm still on Twitter is because I find you know the, the sentiment signals there are as good as anything I've found. But you know, it's I, I'm really glad that you actually. You, I think you brought up GameStop because to me, you know, I was looking at GameStop. I was buying Bed Bath and Beyond, you know, a year and a half ago because I mean, a hundred percent of the float was sold short, and and it was hard for me to understand. Same thing with GameStop. More than a hundred percent of the float sold short and you think how does any hedge fund in their right mind ever get themselves in that sort of position uh you know to be with that sort of potential squeeze um there and and i think you know uh michael burry was buying gamestop at the time because he saw that same thing i think he's interested in this cannabis trade today too not necessarily for the same reasons but there's that same dynamic there that i i think that like you mentioned the, the 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 active money that's still out there is algorithm driven and it's it seems like momentum is maybe one of the, the only factors that they use. And so something that's falling in price, they just build up a bigger and bigger short position against it. That's the only way I could kind of explain what was happening at GameStop towards the end there before it reversed higher. Um, you know, if that's going on in, in these illiquid names, you know, it does set up a pretty explosive short squeeze. But I, I want, I you know, what about, the- uh, Jesse, uh, just again, from a positioning standpoint, because you look for things and I mean, to be fair, I've been bullish in cannabis all year. I've been bullish all last year, bullish the year before that, bullish the year before that. 2012, I wrote a tweet. I like to float it around because it reminds me how old I am. It says, if the Great Depression, uh, I, mean, I can't believe I just messed this up, but something along the lines of the Great Depression ended the first prohibition, the next Great Depression will end the modern prohibition of cannabis. I wrote that in 2012. Yeah. So here we are nine years later, 10 years later. And uh, it's we're still waiting on it. And I'll tell you the other thing: the reason that we have stayed primarily liquid uh, securities, public securities, despite all the fuckery, despite all the banks and all the you know, why does J.P. Morgan pick now to send out a memo when they don't really have that big of a business? You wonder. 
uh, but you sort of know. And and the reality is, like, it, it, it's 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 it, this is all going to change, and it's going to probably change sooner than a lot of people think because you know most people have given up on the trade. They have PTSD, and I say that Pershing. Uh, traumatic stress disorder. They think J.P. Morgan is that. I don't think J.P. Morgan is that. Uh, but I, what I, what I don't know is uh, when the tax loss selling abates. I, I do think that we're very close, and I think that when they turn, the buyers will be higher. Well, one of the most I think valuable things that I've learned from you is is a framework for viewing whatever trade or investment as you're looking at is the the, the concept of the four legs of the trading table. Fundamentals, sentiment, technicals, macro. Maybe you could just—I know you've kind of touched on these things, just you know, here and there already. But maybe framing the the investment from that those four legs would be would be helpful. Well, I think fundamentals are—I mean, that's the thesis that we're leaning against. The fundamentals are terrific, and even if it's a value trap, even if they miss earnings by twenty percent and the PE goes up, like you're still just got so much cushion on your. Uh, you know, on, on that business in such a moat right now. And when, you know, you're sort of stocked out against, you know, when you lose your moat, you're going to gain access to capital, uh, gain access to listing, gain access to all sorts of things that will level the playing field. Yes, maybe your margins will go from 50% to 30%, but you're, you know, the addressable market explodes and, and, and your efficiencies in your business explode. So, you know, that's really more structural, I would say, like sort of that, um, you know, we look at the fundamentals as as our baseline. We look at really the federal movement or the structural as that upside call option to the thesis. Like we think these things re-rate any, you know, call it five x uh, by the time they uplist, probably from these levels more, right? And so that to us is, you know, that's the call option on the space when they figure it out. And I don't think they're going to. I personally don't think they're going to have a comprehensive solution unless this bill that's being murmured about uh, out of South Carolina is, you know, gets bipartisan support and the Democrats realize that they have to take the win. That's a scenario if, you know, that's feasible. But absent that, uh, it's likely going to be an incremental slog over time. And that's uh, probably as much as people don't want to hear this, the best case scenario for the companies that are continuing to widen their lead and build scale and consolidate operations and really feed the beast, right? Because at the end of the day, when this thing does go, the one thing that we can all agree on is they're not going to want to upset the apple cart. They're not going to want to stop the the revenues. The states are going to want the revenues. The, the uh, representatives from those states are going to want to protect those revenues uh, and, and, and those jobs, Right. So, you know, it gets political, but in a good way, finally, when that when that switch finally flips. Uh, but that's all structural. Right. Fundamentals. I can send you know, I'll throw you a, a, a grid of the fundamentals and the, and the multiples. It's eye watering uh, growth and value fundamentals, uh, technicals, you know, ugly, uh, really oversold. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, the technicals will confirm the the fundamentals at a later date, I think. I think fundamentals lead is the old adage. In the short term, the market's a voting machine. That's the technicals. In the long term, the market's a weighing machine. Those are the fundamentals. But right now, really oversold. And every cyclical bull market uh, starts with a short covering rally. So that's what we think is going to happen. Uh, and then the last one is psychology. And you know, fundamentals, technical, structural psychology. Psychology uh, is, I mean, I'm more, I mean, people, people are texting me or pinging me as we're sitting here, wow, you sure get a lot of hate. And I'm like, I know, I don't even look at Twitter anymore. Um, I don't even look at Twitter anymore because it's like, it's just, I'm I'm just focused right now on the task at hand. And I think think by the end of the year, people are going to have a lot different perception on cannabis and a lot different perception on the people who were bullish on cannabis versus the people who said, hey, I told you so, stay out of this sector. It's garbage. This is a 2022, 2023 story. Um, everybody has a different time horizon and risk profile. I don't disparage anybody. Um, as you know, I've been doing it for over 20 years online. I talk about what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, why I'm doing it. And you know, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, always honest. So if somebody's got a problem, I'm down 50% since February, you know, that's on your timing, not mine. Uh, but I empathize. I've been there. I am there. Uh, in a lot of ways this year, although, you know, more giving back what was a great year, uh, you know, than the alternative. But nonetheless, it's a long game. We're looking out and we're looking forward and we're very excited. Uh, and if there is, you know, if that's uh, too Pollyanna, then I'll own it. But but I think it's going to work out. 
Well, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because I I think one thing people don't, especially in today's market, uh, whether you're talking about crypto or these meme stocks, is people don't have a good understanding of how to manage risk. So like you said, you've had a great year. It's gone, you know, maybe down to a good year. What have you done? Obviously, you've had to manage risk through this, through these last nine months. And so how have you accomplished that? Uh, No, I mean, listen, uh, you know me, Jax. Go away. If I if I was going to say to you a, a great year to a good year, I'd be lying. It was a great year turned into a okay year, right? But mm-hmm. the year's not over, right? right? I think it's going to be a great year by the time the year is over. Um, and I'm again, I'm a man on an island with that view, with the exception of one or two people that I speak with. Um, that's not true. There's other people, but my point is, it's not over yet. Um, you know, what we've tried to do, I'll be honest, we sold a little bit, not enough in February. I did want to lighten up a little bit into the summer, but unless you were planning your summer vacation in February, you didn't get a chance. So I didn't sell as much as, as I, as I, I could have or wanted to, but I try not to look back sometimes better than others. Uh, And, you know, the fundamentals were such that, you know, we're happy to ride this out. I think this is still the easy trade. And maybe I'm being glib. Maybe I'm fooling myself. Maybe I'm ruining my reputation. But I still think this is the easy trade. When these things get on the big board, when they get up to, to NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, then things get harder for the industry. This goes from a cottage industry to an industrial complex. All these clubby, smiley, handshaky, friendly, a lot of that goes away, right? This becomes a Wall Street industrial complex and we lose a lot of it and that's just the way it's going to be it's like when a founder you know turns it over to uh, a suit in the corner office it's just the way things happen uh, i just don't think anybody is looking at cannabis as an asset class yet and i think that's about to change in a massive way well I, this is uh totally changing gears i've you know we've i've taken up a ton of your time already but i i, I gotta ask you um you know just and this is more of a personal question, but out of everybody I've known in the business, you seem to have a better grasp on how to balance, uh, you know, your values and priorities with with your, you know, with what you got on, going on with work, friends, family, community. They've always been a big deal in your life. How, how have you managed to maintain this perspective through your career? Well, Jax. Um, I mean, listen, I'll tell you the honest truth, Jesse. I'm a lot more pleasant on the page than in person. Um, and I'm a lot different now than I used to be, you know, nine 11 really did change me not to kind of use that as an excuse because I think it changed me in a good way. A lot of the times I'm very lucky to be surrounded by people who, you know, who see through my difficult attributes and support me and love me still. And, you know, I think that's a testament to, you know, the ability to find people who, um, you know, are good people. I mean, because I think I'm a good person. At the end of the day, I try to do the right thing. I don't always do it, but as I tell my wife, you know, make a lot of mistakes, but I rarely make the same mistake twice. Um, and I think just just the ability to appreciate that, and I think a lot of it, to be honest, you know, is having gone through really hard times. I mean, I I will tell you, having suffered from depression, PTSD, and still at times, you know, it makes you really realize the little things that I took for granted. And I don't think I was like this, to be honest, when I was on Wall Street making Jackson, please stop, honey. When I was on Wall Street making millions of dollars, I took a lot of things for granted. I was a bit of an asshole. And, and, I, and, and you know, maybe I didn't treat people the way that I always, you know, would aspire to treat people. But as you get older, you change in certain ways and hopefully for the better, some ways in the worse. Uh, my hair, my weight, maybe, but uh, hopefully in the better, because over time, you know, you don't remember really. Uh, a lot about this life, but you remember how people make you feel and you remember, you know, the people you love. And, you know, at the end of the day, like we're not going to be here much longer. So you try to just hold on to the things that matter and, and try to learn as you go. And that's probably as honest as I can be. Well, it's, it's something that I've, uh, you know, always appreciated and, and I'm uh, really grateful to you, Todd, for taking the time to do this today. This, this really seems like a timely thing. Like I said, I'm going to get this podcast published today, but I, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with my audience and, and taking the time to do this. My, I, I appreciate it. And if I <clears throat> seemed a bit all over the place, aside from my dog attacking me as we speak, you know, it is during the trading day. Uh, I'm, I, I'm ADD as a matter of course, so I'm normally like a, a moth in a light bulb factory. But on a day like today, uh, you know, you, you make it all work. Well, Thank you, my friend. And I, by the way, I do want uh, next time we're, we do Ojai, uh, I hope to see you there. 
Yeah, you know, Ojai is, is a place I spent a ton of time in, so I, I love love going back there. But I do also have to mention before we're done, yeah, I know you're not spending as much time on Twitter, but uh, anytime anybody expresses an interest to me in, in investing in cannabis, I always point them to your Twitter page, at Todd underscore Harrison. Go follow Todd, and uh, you know you do a terrific job of keeping everybody updated on the space. So thanks for that, too. I appreciate you. And, uh, and listen, have a good uh, rest of the year, a good uh, holiday with you and your family. And uh, I look forward to doing this in uh, what will it be, 2025? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll do it before then. So but thanks a lot. And we'll do it again. Uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Thanks, Todd. Terrific. Thanks, Jess. Sound going for the 142! And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.